Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio. I'm Darren Hefty, along with my brother Brian. We're going to talk a little about winterizing farm equipment. Yes, I know. E- even here, we're on our farm. It's 60 degrees today, which in November, that's an amazing day. So super happy that we've got one more week here. The temperatures are really nice, but uh, that's not going to last forever. We know once we get past Halloween, uh, the snow could come at any point. It's already come one time and melted away, so it could get cold here pretty soon. And you're probably sitting in the same boat. If you're as far north as we are or farther north, you're thinking, well, winter's already here. Uh, but if you're even further south of us, we were talking to a caller down in Tennessee on Friday, and he said, man, we're, we're going to be cold down here and below freezing. So uh, those those temperatures come, and you got to be prepared for it. So we'll discuss winterizing farm equipment. We'll also be taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. And you can always email us, radio at agphd.com. The average high right now for our area where we farm, southeast South Dakota, 49 degrees, average low, 28. So that's certainly not terrible. And we very commonly are doing work at this time of year that's not harvest. So our goal was always on our farm was always we want to finish harvest by October 31. And then we figured we had one to two weeks to take care of fertility, tillage, that kind of thing. Well, we do a lot of that stuff as we go through harvest now. So, I mean, things have changed a a ton. But the point is, our dad always used to plan on, hey, we should have until the middle of November with fairly good weather. And granted, we could get a snowstorm. We could be done October 31 or a little earlier. But usually, this is kind of the way it worked out. But the trick is, when things get cold... And then you still have this work to get done. You want to make sure, because we're talking about winterizing farm equipment, but it's also a little bit, how do you work with the environment you've got? Because quite frankly, we still have stuff we're trying to do on our farm, and we have had temps as low as 15 degrees already. Well, you can't have stuff freeze up. You can't bust things up, whether it's your pumps or spray or whatever it would happen to be. So we'll talk about that a little bit throughout the show as well. We deal with that in the spring, too, by the way. Darren and I will often say, you know, the frost hasn't even fully come out of the ground before we're planting a lot of years. <laughs> And people from the South lose their minds. They're like, what? You can't plant in ground that's frozen? Oh, yeah, we do just about every single year. Now, I'm not going to say it's frozen in the top foot, but there will still be a little bit of frost down deep in the ground sometimes that's not fully out, usually on the north-facing slopes. But we go, boy, we got a lot of acres to get done. We got to roll. We know that if we plant early, we're in a lot better shape in terms of maximizing yield. So anyway, we deal with this cold weather thing all the time. We spray a lot of herbicide early, real early in the spring. And I'm so thankful. Our dad built a a heated shop in 1976. I have pictures from when it was getting built. 1976, a long time ago. Well, by about the year 2000, we barely had any of our equipment that would fit in the shed. And we finally built a much bigger heated shop in 2013, I believe was the year, because we we wanted to put stuff inside just for a little while, even like the sprayer. Uh, and I, I mean, if we're going to be out spraying when it's cold, we got to ha- we got to be inside 
at night. Otherwise, every single night you'd have to effectively winterize your sprayer. So anyway, like I say, we'll talk about winterizing farm equipment today, but if you've got any questions for us, just give us a call, 844-44-AG-PHD. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com. Right now, we're going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag! All right, I have this follow-up question from John. We were talking about burn down and sharpen, and and John said, hey, uh, that question about uh, the burn down and sharpen was about adding nitrogen and MSO, and you said that MSO, MSO is usually sufficient and that adding nitrogen will heat it up some, but uh, specifically, what do each of those two different additives do with the sharpen? What does nitrogen do differently than simply just adding more than MSO, MSO won't do. Okay, so I don't know that the fertilizer is going to help you a ton. It'll probably help a little bit, but here's the main reason why we want the MSO in there, and we talk often on the show about this. The main difference between non-ionic surfactant and methylated seed oil, or quite frankly, crop oil. MSO and crop oil, I lump in the same bin. With non-ionic surfactant, your goal is to spread and stick the product onto the leaf. Methylated seed oil or crop oil will have those properties, plus it will allow you to burn through the thick wax that's on the leaves of weeds so you can penetrate down into the leaf more quickly. So you will see that with non-ionic surfactant, the product's not going to work as quick. Methylated seed oil or crop oil, it will work faster. Now, it's not a big deal if you've got a thin wax on that leaf. So in the case of non-ionic surfactant, it usually works fine in those cases. But if you've got a thick wax, that's where we want to burn through with the methylated seed oil or crop oil. Okay, so just in very simplistic terms, that's the difference there. With fertilizer, so there are some weeds that are nitrogen sensitive. So for example, putting ammonium sulfate, which gives you some nitrogen, putting ammonium sulfate together with Roundup, means better control on certain weeds like water hemp because for whatever reason, the nitrogen helps either uh, move it through the plant, bring it into the plant, whatever. I don't, off the top of my head, I don't even remember exactly what it was. But all I know is when you put nitrogen together with Roundup on a nitrogen-sensitive weed, we have a better kill. So a product like Sharpen, it's a PPO, and that is basically... Again, in super simplistic terms, it's basically there just burning the heck out of stuff. So it's almost like taking a match to it. So would fertilizer help penetrate through the, the wax and the leaf a little faster? Would it help give you a little bit faster burn? Would just fertilizer on its own help burn the weed? All those three things, probably true, yeah. So would it help a little bit? I believe so with a product like Sharpen. Now, if you put a ridiculously high rate of fertilizer with a product like Roundup that doesn't work the way Sharpen does, Roundup kills the, each and every growing point. It's got to move inside. That's different. That probably wouldn't help. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Take your tillage to the next level with the Insight Universal Tillage Tool from McFarland Ag. With more adjustability and flexibility, the Insight is the ultimate one-pass tillage tool. Visit McFarlandAg.com to find your closest dealer. From machine storage buildings and farm shops to dependable buildings to house your livestock, regardless of building size or use, Morton has a building for every budget. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit MortonBuildings.com. 
Because the challenges you face are getting bigger every year. BASF is committed to helping with more than boots on the ground. We're committed to boots in the mud, boots on the steps of your truck, your tractor, your combine, the linoleum tiles of your coffee shop, the concrete of your co-op, the gravel in your shed. So we can listen, learn firsthand, help right now to ensure success. BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. The hard-working, independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example, talk openly, and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health. Through awareness, guidance, and action, together we can uproot the stigma. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio. We're talking about winterizing farm equipment. Yes, yes, yes. Very important to get that done. You don't want to have any problems out there. Don't want to waste any money by not getting something protected, and then all of a sudden it freezes up on you. And one piece of equipment that I think about is the sprayer. There's lots of spots there that, that you could have some trouble. And we've got our friend Nick Flights on with Pentair to talk about that. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing good today. Thanks for having me on. Hey, you know, I should have mentioned the spray trailer also, and I, I think about how valuable that's been on our farm. I, we look at speeding up the spraying operations on our farm. That that spray trailer makes a big difference too. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point. You know, any anything involved with fluid movement, right, whether it's a spray trailer, sprayer, other tendering equipment, tanks you have around, um, you know, it's all susceptible to damage, freeze damage, uh, you know, if you don't get the, the water out and get some type of winterizing fluid through it. So that's actually something I'm glad you mentioned that because that really didn't even cross my mind either was your, your tender trailer. Well, I always think about the sprayer because, uh, well, anybody that's listened to our show for very long realizes, man, those guys want to spray late in the fall. They want to spray very early in the spring, and it's store the sprayer inside, uh, maybe use uh, liquid nitrogen as a carrier so it doesn't freeze up, something like that. I mean, we're we're always pushing the limits here. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean the sprayer is really, if not the most, one of the most commonly used implements on the farm today. You know, we use the sprayers so much more than we used to, so many different application types that the spraying window is, is really extended to, to fall applications, you know, winter wheat applications, uh, streaming nitrogen on, um, early season um, herbicides, liquid fertilizers, things really going out year-round. So, um, you know, I know it's, it's, we're in the middle of harvest season, right, and everybody's really focused on that, but with winter weather approaching, especially in northern latitudes, it, it is good to remember that sprayer and, and other uh, liquid-moving equipment because you, you don't want to get caught in an issue where you do have some freeze damage that can occur. Um, really, you know, if you, you, 
it's pretty easy, pretty simple to, to get some winterizing fluid. And, and there's a lot of different products, different things you can use. You know, I think for short term, some liquid nitrogen you mentioned or using that as a carrier during colder spring conditions is fine. We don't normally recommend that for overseason storage, though. That can be corrosive to the pump, to seals, and a lot of the internal plumbing um, parts over time and can lead to some premature failures that we've seen. Especially, it's especially hard on your, your solution pump. Um, so really any type of winterizing fluid, though, whether it's RV, marine, some people use windshield washer fluid, um, you know, any source like that's going to be something good to, to winterize any of your liquid moving equipment. And you can reuse it. I've had people ask me, can you reuse antifreeze, say RV antifreeze, uh, multiple seasons? You definitely can. If you can collect it, you can save some money. Uh, on that um, by, by collecting and reusing it. There's no issue there with reusing anything like that. When I think about how many things farmers save in the shop, I, I just every shop I've gone into, Nick, there's all these jugs that are handwritten on, hey, here's, here's what we've got here. Of course we're going to save that if we can and save some money. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I also think while you're going through that winterizing process, I strongly encourage you to, to – Check the condition of some of the, the components on your sprayer. Check the pump condition. Check the nozzles. This is my favorite time of year to check for spray nozzles. I know, really, we're putting the sprayer up most places. We're not talking about nozzles much right now. But I think this is the best time of year to do it because you're going to be cleaning that sprayer out. Um, you're going to be running uh, some type of antifreeze through all the plumbing. It's a good time. Unfold that boom. Do a visual check of your spray nozzles. Make sure they look like they're spraying correctly and evenly, but also do a quick catch test. I really like the spot-on calibrator. Pick about 10 or 12 nozzles across your boom. That's plenty. And check the flow rate for wear. And if you want to learn more about checking about wear and flow rates and that, there I did make a video on Acres TV. If you look up Pintera on Acres TV, you can find a video. I go through a lot of information on that. But I tell you to check nozzles right now this time of year uh, for, for a couple reasons. One, everybody wants to buy spraying parts come spring. February, March, April, everybody's trying to buy sprayer parts, and we get some back order issues, and it can take a while to get those parts you're looking for. If you order them early, if you know that you need new nozzles or other sprayer parts early, you can avoid some of those back order, order issues. And you can also be up to date on new products coming out. It gives you time to investigate new pump technology, new nozzles, new nozzle bodies. You know, recently there have been some approved nozzle changes for Enlist and Dicamba. So if you're applying those products, you've got some additional nozzle options available to you. There's been a really recent development. And there's probably going to be some more come out here soon as well. So um, it's good to, to be ahead of the game, in my opinion, on our, our parts needs to avoid that rush scenario that everybody kind of, we all get to in the spring. Yeah, we sure do. Hey, those are great tips. We've been talking here with Nick Flights with Pentair. And Nick, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. And again, folks, uh, check out that video Nick said he posted on Acres TV as well. Thanks, Nick. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me on. Got Aaron Booth with us right now with Case IH. And uh, the winterizing process has already begun on our farm, Aaron. How about across the country? What are some things guys need to keep in mind? Well, um, yeah, the first thing uh, to keep in mind when you get through, uh, you know, get through harvest this year and ready to put it up for the winter is just, you know, clean clean up your piece of equipment and and kind of make a list of what uh, you know wasn't working quite right, what uh, you know 
might have i wouldn't say failed but uh you know you, you were able to finish but uh you know you want to something you need to fix before you put it out in the field again um and and you know work with your local uh case ih dealer and and get it taken care of now uh you know i overheard the end of nick talk and he made a, a good point if you wait till you wait till spring you wait till next harvest um to take care of it you know you, you run out of time it's more expensive whereas uh a lot of our local case ah dealers are um, running you know specials in the off season um where they'll do an inspection and you know take care of anything you need and give you uh, plenty of time to uh um, get that equipment ready to go for uh, next season you know, I talked to a lot of guys here just over the past couple of weeks that are, hey, just got done with the combine and we're going through it on a rainy day here or a cold day in the shop. Just everything's fresh in our minds. What needs to be replaced? What what didn't work as well as it should have? And we can get those things on order. And that's one thing we've learned over the last few years with supply issues and whatnot with the whole pandemic thing. Uh Getting prepared and, and doing those things on the front side is really important because you think about all this preventative maintenance that we do now means that when we jump in this stuff in the spring, it's going to run and run well, and we aren't going to have any downtime when you really want to go. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and, and, it's, and and it's it's those things that uh, didn't work quite right, but also, you know, you know, it's a good time to change your fluids, change your filters if it's, if it's due for that. Um, before you get into the next season, um, and and I you know I like to think all the kind of supply chain issues are behind us, but I think we've learned that um, you know it's a uh, you never know what's going to happen, and and just uh, you know not waiting until last minute is always going to be a good idea. You know, as as things go into the the winter, a lot of farmers uh, and us included, we've got machinery that's going to be in a cold shed or even outside. Uh, having the right fluids and, and all those things in can be a big deal too, rather than, uh, I, I don't know, my dad would always say, I don't want to leave dirty oil in there over the winter. What Are there a few things to keep in mind there? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you you can't go wrong um, when you know with the genuine uh, case IH fluids in your equipment. I mean, they are tested um, to work in that equipment, and that includes being in cold conditions. Um, you know, it's it's... It's, it's tested to hold up to very cold environments. Uh, so if you do need to use it in the winter, it's going to work. Um, your hydraulics are going to work like they should. Um, another big thing, uh, your battery, if you if you are putting the equipment away for the winter, um, it's, a, it's a very good idea to disconnect the battery um, or to use a shutoff in your equipment. There is, you know, most equipment these days have some draw on that battery. And over time, that's going to, you know, it's going to make it harder to get it started when the uh, it does get warm again, um, and even if you disconnect it to put a like a maintainer on it to to keep some charge on it so that it it does stay um, you know fresh through the winter. That's a big deal. I know our dad was always big on that too, taking care of the batteries. That was one of the things he would pound into our heads each year as well. Talking with Aaron Booth here with Case IH. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Stay tuned. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. 
get more points with the end zone from Farm Shop MFG. In a 20,000 bushel soybean bin, gaining three points of moisture adds the equivalent of 900 bushels to your bottom line. Call 712-520-6051. There's an innovative new soybean herbicide on the market that's helping close the door on weed resistance and open new doors to productivity. Preview 2.1 SC Herbicide from UPL is a multi-mode of action pre-emergent that controls the most resistant broadleaf weeds at the beginning of the season and continues to control later weeds with strong residual activity. Ask your retailer about Preview 2.1 Herbicide from UPL and always read and follow label directions. Can you predict the future? I can't. That's why when I'm planting soybeans, I treat with Heads Up Seed Treatment. With more than 15 years of research, Heads Up offers proven protection against both white mold and sudden death syndrome. So no matter what the year throws at you, you've already taken that first step to be prepared. Don't let your beans suffer from disease when they're just starting to look their best. Tell your seed dealer you need Heads Up Seed Treatment. Learn more at HeadsUpST.com. Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Waterhemp. Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of Fierce Herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. Go long for season-long foliar disease protection that starts at plant. Only Zyway brand fungicides from FMC provide season-long foliar disease protection from the start. Active ingredient flutriafol moves through your corn plants as they grow for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. Growers and retailers are sharing their Zyway brand fungicide success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. Since when does every upgrade to your planter have to cost $1,000 a row? To me, good engineering means you create a simple tool that works in all conditions. I mean, not every attachment has to be complicated and have sensors all over it. With the 360 wave closing system, we took a simple approach. It's a blade that rolls moist soil over the seed, eliminating the seed slot. A simple mechanical solution that works. Better results, lower cost. 360 wave from 360 Yield Center. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today, talking about winterizing farm equipment on today's program. We had a question that came in here. Uh, step into the mailbag here, Janelle. We got another equipment question. Oh, I think yeah, you already we've already been there. Bag, we've already been there once. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Aaron, Aaron just from, likes to hear the music. This I one think. came in from Sam. He <laughs> said, "All right, we got 20 intro corn." What's your opinion, pros and cons here, on strip tilling in 20-inch rows? Does it work and worth it, or just better off to just broadcast stuff and roll? Well, the challenge is going to be getting residue to flow through. Now, if you're talking soybean stubble or something, probably fine, not a real big deal. But the challenge becomes when you're doing this in corn stalks, and you've got so much more residue to deal with. So if I was going out in light residue, 
that's probably fine. But And keep in mind, the other thing you can do is there's nothing saying you can't do tillage first to destroy or get rid of some of your corn residue. So th that can be done. Here's the main reason why I would even consider it as opposed to broadcast. If you broadcast fertilizer, a lot of people will use light tillage to work that fertilizer in. So you will find that in the top three inches of your soil, you will be loaded up with fertility, and the next, however many inches your roots grow, many, uh, you have not a whole lot of fertility. Here's the other thing. If you, let's say, strip till down to 10 inches deep, and then you do nothing until spring and plant right in there, you now have no compaction down to 10 inches deep. Again, if you're doing light tillage out there, you might have a compaction layer at four inches deep, six inches deep, something like that, limiting your root growth. So those are the two main reasons why I would still at least consider strip till in 20 inch rows so I can go deeper without having any compaction and so I can place fertility deeper into my soil profile. Here's the other thing. You don't have to just be strip till or just be conventional till or just broadcast or whatever. I mean, you can mix and match these things a little bit too, where you say, ooh, I do have that problem on my farm. Maybe I'll try this this year. Maybe I'll do something different next year. That's not necessarily all bad. So the, the biggest hang-up though, again, is really the residue. The second biggest hang-up, I suppose, would be you have to have more rows in the same number of feet as compared to somebody on 30 intros. All right. Thanks for the question. We appreciate that, Sam. Let's continue our discussion here on winterizing farm equipment. Got Nate Jansen with us right now with C&B Equipment and John Deere. How you doing, Nate? Doing pretty well. How about you guys? We are doing well, too, other than the fact that it's going to get cold here very shortly. And, you know, we're trying to get everything we can done in the field. But at some point, uh, we're going to finish up with different pieces of equipment, and that means winterizing them. Uh, got a few tips for us? Anything to keep in mind as we head into that season? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, Obviously, we're, we're already at that time of year. We've kind of had our rude awakening, if you will. And uh, biggest thing uh, when we talk winterization is, one, picking the right products uh, that we winterize with just to, to make sure we're getting the proper protection for the type of sprayer that we have. Um, the timing of it, obviously, is really crucial. And uh, then ultimately, it's making sure we hit all the different areas uh, with our respective sprayer. With all the new technology with nozzle pulsing and boom recirculation um, and eductors, and if you don't have one, the biggest thing is just to make sure that we're hitting all the areas, uh, getting our, our clean rinse uh, solution lines, our return rinse solution lines, our eductor, all the nooks and crannies that could easily be missed. Doesn't hurt just to take your finger, point at your sprayer, and follow all the solution lines when you're going through your winterization process, just to make sure you don't miss a corner of the machine. Yeah, that's right. You don't want to miss anything. And you know, I was thinking about it too, Nate. There, there are some pieces of equipment that, yep, we're going to be done as soon as it gets too cold or or whatnot. But then there's other pieces of equipment that we're just going to keep running all winter, whether that's the tractor that we're using to push snow or to feed cattle or whatever the case may be. What do you do in those cases? I mean, if you've got heated storage, that is wonderful. A heated shop has been such a blessing on our farm, but not everybody has that. How do you keep those pieces of equipment going in the best way? 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of different things we can do there. Uh, first one, especially early on, if you haven't got winter blended fuel yet, uh, is look to get some some additive added early. Doesn't hurt to uh, to do it before you run into issues where you got to swap filters and that sort of thing. So, uh, anytime now, I would re really recommend when the freezing temp starts hitting overnight consistently, start putting fuel additive in uh, to avoid any of those troubles. Other part is too, if you've got uh, a block heater, uh, make sure you check your extension cords and and uh, the breakers in the shed where you're storing it. Make sure everything's in proper working condition. So you've got a good high gauge uh, um, extension cord reaching to that piece of machine, uh, and uh, really get that part of it ready. Um, other part too, uh, when we start looking at our machines as a whole, uh, again, just like anything else, give it a good look over. Um, if you're going to start utilizing block heaters and those sorts of things, make sure you've cleared out any of the debris um, that's maybe accumulated over the summer and fall season, just to avoid any uh, mishaps and that sort of thing. Yeah, a lot of things to think about here. And, you know, one of the things that our dad always told us was, well, he had a lot of experience and experience was defined as past mistakes. <laughs> so if there's something he had forgotten <laughs> one winter, he made sure that that got done the next one. So hopefully, I guess that's why we decided to do this show today. We're just uh, trying to come up with about every idea we can here so so people don't forget any of those things. Absolutely. I'd highly recommend making a list of all of your fuel filters on the farm. Make sure you get your primaries and your secondaries uh, for you know, any tractor you're going to use, semis, all that stuff. And never hurts to have a spare one sitting on the shelf. A uh, couple bucks now could save you a lot of hours later. Yeah, just being prepared, have a few things on hand. You're right. Because you, when, when do you have problems? It's <laughs> at 5 o'clock on a Saturday or something, you know, where you um, just yep, can't exactly. get a hold of anybody. Hey, Nate, thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on. Good luck to you heading into this colder weather. Likewise. Thank you. Got Kenny with us right now out in western Colorado. Hey, Kenny, how you doing? Good, sir. How are you? Good, good. What can we do for you? So you guys actually were covering this conversation just a few minutes ago, and I happened to be in a bad area, and I kind of lost the conversation. Um, you were covering the difference between MSO and crop oil. And that's a question that I've always kind of had. Can you maybe step, say or talk about that again? What's the difference between using crop oil, using MSO oil, and using Bio 90 oil? And is there certain times of year or temperatures that you recommend is better for one over the other? Okay. Uh, first of all, Kenny, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. Uh, that, that is a good question. What we were talking about a little bit earlier, the, uh, John from Maryland had this question about adding fertilizer to methylated seed oil or crop oil, and I had just been comparing non-ionic surfactant to the oils. But I never really got into what's the difference between crop oil or methylated seed oil, so let's talk about that just a little bit. Crop oil concentrate and, is— And Bio90 would be a NIS. That'd be a non-ionic surfactant. Oh, that's what that is? Okay. So, all right. Well, let's let's step back then. So, non-ionic surfactant, the, the purpose of that is to spread and stick whatever you're spraying to the leaf. So, that is less expensive. It is going to provide less burn to the crop, and it's kind of just a standard adjuvant. Now, there are different... Let's say there are a lot of different non-ionic surfactants out there, and I mean we could spend 
uh, 20 minutes probably talking about all these different levels of non-ionic surfactant. And Janelle, uh, our sister, is producing the show today. Janelle, you should maybe make a note. We should have Jim Reese on with Precision Labs at some point. We could kind of go through that in a little more detail on some show coming up. But for today, let's I mentioned non-ionic surfactant. Let's talk just a little bit about crop oil and methylated seed oil. So with those, you are typically going to have some type of surfactant in there already. So you've already got the level uh, that you you had with just the non-ionic surfactant. So in the methylated seed oil and crop oil, you'll have spreader sticker. Crop oil is derived from petroleum-based products. Methylated seed oil comes from crops. So some people want to, uh, they, they feel like the the petroleum-based crop oil concentrate is going to burn more, hurt the crop more. I haven't really seen that. Methylated seed oil seems to give a little bit more crop response in, in my book, but we'll talk more about that right after this break. You can count on agro-liquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients, AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Insects have reigned since the dawn of time. Adapted to their surroundings, Experience the harshest climates and toughest challenges until now. With two modes of action, Ridgeback Insecticide delivers one devastating outcome for soybean aphids. Extinction from your fields. They may have lived through it all, but they won't survive this. End soybean aphids reign at ridgeback.corteva.us Get the most from every acre on your farm by attending Ag PhD's workshops and clinics this winter. I'm Darren Hefty. My brother Brian and I are hosting a bunch of free workshops throughout January and February with each event focusing on different subjects that will all help you make more money. On January 16th, we start off with our soils clinic dedicated to helping you better understand your ground and how to make the most out of your fertilizer investments. We follow that up on January 17th with our corn agronomy workshop where we review our top tips for expanding profitability in your corn. Then on February 7th, we have our Naturals Workshop, which is devoted to one of the newest developments in increasing yields across the country, natural and biological products. Finally, on February 8th, we're holding our Soybean Agronomy Workshop to go over how to make the most of your soybean crop. As you can probably tell, we have a lot of great information on how to improve your farm, and we can't wait to share it all with you. Best of all, these events are free, so be sure to check them out. Learn more and register at agphd.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Are you ready? We got the need, the need for seed treatment. Start your engines. Ready, set, Intego. 
Start your season strong with Intego Sweet Soybeans, Intego Fungicide Soybeans, and Intego Sweet Cereals OF from Valent USA. Ask your Valent rep about seed treatment solutions or visit valent.com slash Intego. Always read and follow label instructions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio today. We've been talking about winterizing farm equipment, but right before the break, Kenny from Colorado called in. Just wondering the difference between methylated seed oil, crop oil, and non-ionic surfactant too. So right before the break, I was saying that methylated seed oil is derived from crops. So they'll call it vegetable oil sometimes or seed oil. I mean, methylated seed oil is, um, there's a, a refining process because straight seed oil, <laughs> we used to use a little bit of that like 30 years ago, and oh my gosh, did that burn stuff. So the methylated seed oil didn't burn quite as bad. What we find is that the methylated seed oil is slightly better at penetrating through the wax on leaf surfaces compared to crop oil. So how I rank these three things, non-ionic, crop oil, methylated seed oil is this. If you want just a little bit of uh, sticking, spreading, almost no burn on the crop, you have thin leaf cuticles, so you're not too worried about weed control or anything, then you just use a non-ionic surfactant, you're good. If, on the other hand, you have had drier, warmer conditions for quite a while, the odds are high that as a defense mechanism, the weed has built up more wax on the leaf. So some people will say it's a waxy cuticle, a thick cuticle. Those are the kind of terms that you will hear. And the point is, if all you did is had a non-ionic surfactant with your herbicide, it probably will not penetrate through. It probably won't break through uh, destroy that wax and deliver the herbicide down into the leaf, which is why you need crop oil or methylated seed oil. If you want more and better and faster penetration, then you use a methylated seed oil. Usually costs a little more money, and it usually will burn the crop just a little bit worse in my experience. Crop oil concentrate's been pretty standard. Again, that's petroleum-based, but I don't see that it hurts the crop much as long as you're using it in the right situations and with the right products. Now, earlier, well, last week, I guess it was, Darren and I did a bunch of training for a couple of days with a whole bunch of agronomists. And one of the things that I told these agronomists is I said, look, here's kind of where you earn your money is when a farmer says, because I just gave the example on our own farm, <laughs> I'm like... Rarely do we spray one thing and that's it in the tank. I got one thing in water. I said, rarely do I do that. A lot of times we've got two, three, four things that we're all throwing together. And then the weather varies. So to talk at this time of year, like, oh, yep, you have to have crop oil or you have to have non-ionic surfactant, maybe depending on your mix. But you need to, number one, understand the mix and number two, understand the weather. And here's what I mean by that. So if let's say, let's talk about the weather first. If let's say it's been cool and and humid and you're pretty early in the season and the weeds are pretty small, the odds are very slim that you've got this thick wax on the cuticle of the leaf uh, uh, for that weed. So you probably don't need an oil or a methylated seed oil, a crop oil or a methylated seed oil to bust through the wax. What's going to happen if you throw crop oil or methylated seed oil in is you will see excessive leaf burn. 
We see this a lot of times with wheat producers in a cool, wet spring, and they do their normal thing, just like they always do. And then I get calls of panicked farmers like, oh my gosh, I burned the heck out of my crop. Well, here's what happened, and here's why. Okay, now, understanding the mix is also important because we have certain things like, for example, just the other day, people were all fired up because Lorsban now is supposedly going to be back on the market. Well, Lorsban has some oils in it. So if you start mixing Lorsban in with whatever herbicide you're using, I'm much more hesitant to put a crop oil or methylated seed oil in there because the Lorsban already has oils. On the other hand, if let's say I use a, a pyrethroid, that's real common on our farm, we'll spray a silencer or something like that, a sauna. Well, that doesn't have all those harsh oils in there. And so I can throw that with my normal herbicide package and I don't see a whole lot of crop response. So so that's a big thing. Uh, so over the years, we've talked about products like Bucktroll and Husky, for example, that might have different characteristics compared to something like Roundup. So when you've got a Bucktrill or a Lorsban where it's got all these oils in there already, you start throwing more oil in and oh my gosh, you can burn the heck out of your crop. So you just have to be careful. And this is where I go back to our discussion with these agronomists to say, look, you got to make sure you're working with the farmer to understand what all is going in that tank. Because like for me, a lot of times I'll throw a little fertilizer in. Well, that heats stuff up. If I was to throw Lorsban in, oh, wow, would that heat stuff up? So now I'm thinking, no, I don't need any kind of oil. Otherwise, I've got an excessive amount in that, that spray tank. So anyway, uh, that's the very long, very long answer to your question, Kenny. Anything else we can help you with there? No, sir. I believe you answered that pretty well. So I, I did kind of understand that um, the temperature does play an effect on some of that. Yep. And knowing, knowing what kind of chemicals you're putting in, because some chemicals do have their oil themselves. Yep. So they do. They have and oil that could make it worse. Yeah, and the other thing they're too, burning. Kenny, where you're at, just the the propensity to have low humidity and drought type conditions that that changes the game too. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, and, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to apologize. I was going to say in the area that I'm in, uh, we are pretty dry for the most part. This last year, we had a really good year this year, uh, but not every year is like this. Most years, we're, like we're pretty dry in that area. So, um, And I have, that's the reason I'm asking you, is yep. that I always kind of thought that what you're telling me was right, but uh, we have accomplished to burn different products at certain times and I yep. I thought well maybe I'm I'm not I, hitting things like I'm supposed to be. Well Kenny let's put it this way most of the best learning we always have is our mistakes and believe me Darren and I made plenty. Right. So that's why that's why we're talking all the time about our mistakes. So hopefully other people don't make the same mistakes that we've made. But you know some of these things come down to judgment calls because it's real easy to say oh cool wet spring you do this hot dry you do this well, how about something in between or like in your area where it's yeah. always this one way. So we get used to, well, we just, we have to do it that way or it doesn't work. Well, if we have totally different right. conditions that we're not used to this year, then we may have to change things up. So no, uh, if, if farming was easy, everybody would do it. So anyway, yeah, we got a lot of tough decisions that we have to make. And 
you know, here's the other side of this thing. We're, we're talking a lot about crop response, too. We also have to make sure we get that good weed kill. And, I, I mean, it, it's it's challenging sometimes because of these different products we're throwing in. And I think about even, like, volunteer corn control on our farm. Well, if it's a drought year, if I don't have crop oil in there, it's a disaster for that. And if I don't right, have great yep. weed control, all of a sudden I lose a bunch of yield and everything else. But, anyway, yeah, experience... Um, has just helped us go through all these things and, and learning what to do and what not to do. But they keep coming with new products and different adjuvant formulations in there. And one other thing I'll throw out to you, Kenny, it's a little bit off topic, but but not so much. So it, there are a lot of generics out there today. Back when I was a young yeah. agronomist 30, 35 years ago, there weren't. Well, because the generics, everybody says, wow, the one is just the same as the next. Oh, no, it's not. What no, what happens, right, what happens, the active ingredient's the same, yes. But a lot of times the manufacturer of the name brand product will have patents on the formulations, on the adjuvants, everything else that go in there with it. So you've got different, you can basically, with a generic, you might burn more, you might burn less, you might get better weed control, you might get less. I mean, there, there are some subtle differences there. So, yeah, one product is not exactly equal to the other, even if we say, oh, it's a generic, should be fine. So, I agree with that that statement 110%, actually. Though, I'm actually a commercial spray operator in my area. Yep. And so, you know, I spend my whole summer doing that. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, as we all know, you know, anytime that a crop, anything happens to the crop, whether it's good or bad, it's always the sprayer guy's Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so... Anyway, uh, you know, just trying to be a little bit better knowledgeable of, of yep. how certain products work because we burned a little bit last year, and so I'm trying to figure out, you know, the only way I can fix that problem is to know why it happened. Right. And so yep. I was trying to understand my oils better and yep. thought maybe my oil had... Yeah, that could, that could be it. I'll tell you what, Kenny, uh, in the future, if you ever have something where you go, well, I'm not exactly sure, I got some new mix or whatever, you can certainly give us a call, let us know, we'll, uh, we'll do the best we can to try to help you out. Uh, thanks again for calling, we appreciate it. All right, stay tuned, we're going to get to more of your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag right after this. It takes balance to be successful in farming, because what you get out of it depends on what you put in, and Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. It changes everything. So says Indiana corn grower Nathan Davis about innovative Zyway LFR fungicide from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides are the first and only at-plant corn fungicides to provide unprecedented, season-long, inside-out foliar disease protection. Discover more grower and retailer success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. If you understood everything on a soil test and could make your own fertility plans, do you think you could cut your farm's fertility expenses, maybe even increase your yields? Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. We want to empower you to make your own fertility decisions. That's why we're holding our Ag PhD Soils Clinic on Tuesday, January 16th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. This could be the single most important day you spend in your farming career, and it's free. So register now at agphd.com. 
effortlessly manage your farm fertility with Verify. Verify takes yield data directly from your combine and instantly generates variable rate fertility maps based on your nutritional goals. Whether it's building soil, balancing nutrition, or maintaining fertility. And with full integration with John Deere Operations Center, Verify can send recommendations directly to application equipment, no matter the color. Join Verify today at Verify.com and keep your farm moving. Morton Buildings has served the American farmer for more than 120 years. From manufacturing our own building components to constructing your building, Morton takes pride in being the industry leader in post-frame construction by providing a quality building and exceptional customer service. A Morton is built to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. My mom's got a new case IH tractor and it can do it all. Bail hay all day. Stay in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Shift like a race car? Steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her Case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out CaseIH.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, and we're right in the middle of the Ag PhD Radio mailbag. Uh, I got this one in from Mike. He said, hey, guys, uh, I'm down in Nebraska. Love your show. I don't hear you talking much about low magnesium soils. Uh, I, I've got a garden, for example, that I heavily manured 20 years ago, and I till in grass clippings each year. It was really sandy years ago but now the cec is 26 the ph is 7.4 and the organic matter is 3.1 percent with base saturations of calcium at 85.3 that doesn't leave much room for anything else my mag is only at 8.5 potassium at 5.6 and sodium at 0.6 so what issues would you expect with my magnesium levels this low what can i do to raise that also, any specific issues when my base saturation of K uh, is potentially almost as high as the mag, maybe even higher in some spots. Uh, I've seen this where feedlot lagoon water has been applied to crop ground for many years that the mm-hmm. K actually gets higher than mag. Yeah. Yeah, it can. What we found is the right ratio of magnesium to potassium is somewhere in the range of 2 to 1 to 1 to 1 in terms of parts per million. And he didn't give us the parts per million. By the way, did he give us pH? 7.4. Oh, I, what was the CEC then? 26. Oh, okay. I it thought was, it was 7.4. It was sand, CEC. but with all of the organic material he's been putting in there, grass clippings, manure, everything else, it's raised that CEC up over time. No. I, no. I don't, I don't no, know. No, I guess, no, but no, here's no. the whole thing, uh, Mike. <laughs> when you say sand. Right. Uh, that means every, something different to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's classification, so, that's just a little bit Okay, different. so let, let, let's talk about that first. To get to a 26 cation exchange capacity, you have to have clay out there. Now, I'm not saying you don't have a little bit of sand, and that soil may appear lighter than some of your other soil, which may give you the impression of, oh, this is my sandy soil, and it is your sandy soil, but this is exactly why we like seeing the cation exchange capacity number, because 26 is high, meaning we've got fairly heavy soil. And at 3.1% organic matter, that tells me we don't have 
the organic matter pushing the cation exchange capacity to an unbelievably high level. Now, if you would have told me your your because this is what I thought once you started, Darren, with the question that he'd thrown all this stuff out there over the years. I thought we were going to say 10.1 or something on organic matter. Okay, well, then you could take some sand and maybe turn that into a higher CEC, but not at 3.1% organic matter. So anyway, uh, so I don't have – because I was going to worry that, oh, boy, we've got a ridiculous amount of organic matter. What are we going to do with that? But we don't. We have a normal amount of organic matter and a slightly heavy soil, which – that's that's the kind of stuff we deal with all the time. 26 CECs, 7.4 for a pH. I'm not worried about any of that. So what I would be slightly concerned about is your magnesium to potassium ratio. Look at the parts per million. If you've got less than one to one magnesium to potassium, in other words, if you have more potassium than you do magnesium, that's probably not a good thing. And I'd probably get some magnesium sulfate and try to fix it. That's what I would do. So a lot of people for sourcing magnesium look at magnesium sulfate in high pH, or if it's low pH ground, then they're just using lime that's dolomitic. And by dolomitic lime, what we mean is it's got a bunch of magnesium in there. So, I mean, in terms of just looking at those numbers that you just gave us, I don't have any real big concerns. I like your potassium level. Your calcium, yeah, it's a little bit high, but get your magnesium, get some magnesium in there and you should be good. The other thing that we would encourage you to do, since this is a garden, is take a look at all your micronutrients. I'd like to see how they're doing. Hopefully everything is okay, but that would be the next step is looking at micronutrients and sulfur. All right, thanks for the question. Uh, Brian, your favorite topic of salt. Here's one. This comes in from Darren. I have many favorite topics. Killing weeds, <laughs> tile, salt, you name it. Yep. Uh, all right, so this question comes in from Darren. He said, uh, you guys, uh, <laughs> I listened to your episode on manure application and management. I was curious, do you have any good resources, articles, studies on the issue of salt in soils with excessive manure applications? Here's my thing. I've got a grower that utilizes pen pack steer manure for most of their P&K needs. I wanted to share some more info on this topic with them, how to test for it, thresholds, upper limits, remediation strategies if needed, and so forth. Um, no, you know, I, I, I don't. I, I've read a number of things over the years, but I don't have like some book or some great resource for you on that. A lot of these things that we do end up because we work with literally thousands of farmers, tens of thousands of farmers and have over the years. And we, um, when, when we're doing all this consulting work for them and talking to all these farmers, they're feeding us information all the time. And so then we're constantly asking questions back. Okay, what'd you use? How'd you use it? Everything else. We also farm about 3,500 crop acres and we've used manure for our entire lives. Um, we just had an issue this year trying to push the limits a little bit. So long story, but the point is there isn't going to be one set answer because it's going to it's going to make an enormous difference with this whole salt thing on rainfall, amount and timing, and then on when the salt was applied. So in other words, how long until your crop is going to get harmed has that salt been out there? And what was the rainfall like in between? Then what was the drainage like, the the soil? And I'll, I'll put it to you this way. Even on our farm this year, 
on our very heavy ground where it's 30 plus cation exchange capacity, uh, we almost could have done whatever, had no negative impact from salt. Same rates on 20 CEC ground hurt it pretty bad because we were in a drought. So if we would have had normal rainfall, because we do have lots of tile in the ground and, and lots of calcium in the soil, so we have good porosity, we have good drainage, we just needed the rain to flush that salt away. So in terms of how to test, it's on a stand, like a standard Midwest lab soil test, also on a standard Midwest labs manure test. If you're, you just want to ask if your lab doesn't run those things as standard, you just ask them to and say, hey, I need a salt test here too. Now, here's the other thing, even from one of the guys in our farm brought this up the other day, sodium versus salt. Okay, salt, I'm much more concerned about today and what you've applied this year. Sodium, I'm much more concerned about the buildup and what's my soil test. Okay, salt is leachable. Sodium is not. Now, we can make sodium leachable, but sodium can build up a lot more over time if you're not really watching that and solving any issues. So if we're going to go with high rates of manure year after year after year, that's where I'm worried about sodium on the long-term level. I'm worried about salt on a short-term basis. Okay. So two kind of different things. Salt is, I mean, a little bit fine. Okay. We don't have a big issue with some, but the question is how much, and that's where I'm going with all this so it depends so much on the soil type, the timing, the rainfall, um, and even the crop that you're raising. Soybeans are going to be more sensitive than corn, just as an example. Barley is a little bit less sensitive than corn. So all depends on which crop we're talking about. And anyway, yeah, we've we've made many mistakes over the years on this whole salt deal. Including this year and this one, we were trying to help the neighbor out and whatever. It, it's on me. I'm not blaming anybody else. I screwed it up. But uh, that's how you learn and, and how you figure this all out is doing different things in different fields, trying it out and just seeing and not saying, oh, well, one year I did this test and that's, that, that's how I've learned everything for the rest of my life. No, you got to keep learning every single year because every single year is a little bit different. So anyway, uh, part of our problem this year was applying manu the manure in the spring. So like I said, timing makes an enormous difference. So I didn't want to do it in the spring. We all we traditionally have always tried to do this in the fall, get the manure out in the fall. I have a lot less concerns in the fall. Uh, but anyway, that that that's the way it goes. So no, I don't have any other real fantastic advice or anything for you to read, but I know there's got to be plenty of stuff out there. People have been looking at this for decades. Thanks for the question. We appreciate that, Darren. And yeah, just getting a good test of that manure is going to be a big deal going into it. Got this comment that came in from Trevor. He said, hey guys, you were talking about gold and rice. Just wanted to say thanks for your good argumentation and persuasion. GMO technology does represent the next revolution of agricultural abundance. Hey, Trevor, you're welcome. Yeah, we like talking about what's what's really happening out there, and we definitely want to look on both sides of things and see what's the safety, what's it going to provide for, for humans, and what's it going to do for the farmers that are managing it as well. Thanks for listening to our program today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.